Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life, and I'm Katie Sewell. I'm a public radio professional. I've been in the business nearly 20 years, though I did do something a little different. A few years ago, I quit my job as the senior producer of a daily two-hour morning show, and I moved to Rome for a year. That's where this show began, as I bumbled my way through my first expat experience, alongside Tiffany Parks. Tiffany is my co-host. She's a childhood friend and an expat living in Rome for about 12 years. She's also a writer, with her first book, Midnight in the Piazza. And we're still exploring, and, well, if you're me at least, you're frequently struggling. This show is a journey. For all of you explorers of the world, traveling or living abroad, permanently or temporarily, reminiscing about when you lived in a different culture, or looking for the next chapter after getting home. I hope you enjoy our company and the international authors, journalists, and expats that join us as guests. If you've never heard the show before, I encourage you to go back to the beginning and come along for the whole journey. Or jump around as soon as you get a sense of things. Most of all, we're really glad you're here. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. And today we're going to travel to Positano, Italy. A little side trip I took (laughs) recently. Yay! No, can we actually go? (laughs) I want to go for real. I know, you should go for real. But for now, we'll go in our minds. And actually, we're sort of not going there. This interview just happened to happen there. (laughs) While I was in Positano, I met Michael Marin at the Hotel La Serenus. He is a filmmaker and a writer, but he also worked in conflict zones as a foreign correspondent when he was a young man. I thought it would be really interesting to find out what that was like, particularly how you survive when there's a war going on around you and you're trying to report on it. He now runs an international writers conference called Siren Land, which is what he was doing when I ran into him in Positano. But of course... His travels begin way, way, way back in college, and that's where we're going to pick up the story. Oh, I'm so excited. All right, let's do it. I really begin my my freshman year of college where my uh, girlfriend broke up with me. I was devastated and sitting around moping, and my roommate came back to me one day and said, hey, you know, there's a trip next year going to India at the sociology department, and wouldn't it be cool to sign up for it? And I immediately went and signed up for it because I was like, yeah, I've got to get out of the country. Otherwise, I'm going to be so depressed. Of course, I got over the girlfriend long before I left for India. But then I I will never forget getting off the plane in New Delhi for the first time, going into the streets and seeing the sights and the sounds and the languages and the smells. I mean, you know, India is such a completely sensory experience on all levels. Suddenly I felt I'm at home. I love this. I've always been kind of an ADD person. Suddenly being in this environment where everything was new and everything sort of registers for you that I felt like I have to stay here. And I stayed beyond actually where my where the class stayed. I stayed for about six months and traveled all over India on trains. I got robbed in New Delhi and had to go get my stuff back at American Express back in the Traveler's Checks days. And I went to opium dens and ashrams and tried all kinds of crazy stuff. And I never lost a travel bug after that. And I determined at that point that I travel when I get out of college. When you say that you you never wanted to leave, was that India specific? 
I could live here. This is my home. All along, I thought I belonged in the United States, but India is the place. No, it wasn't that at all. It was that I need to continually be in new places with new input, new sensory input, and all of that. And I need to be kind of knocked out of my comfort zone. I find that it's too... I don't know if it's for everybody or just for me, but I find it's so easy to fall into a routine somewhere. I remember during the very brief period of time I had an actual job, a real job. It was briefly at New York Magazine in, in New York where I'd get on the subway in the morning and go to work that I would find myself sitting at a desk and have no recollection of how I got there. And what happened? What did I do? Somehow I managed to wake up and find myself sitting at this desk. And when you're someplace where everything is new and everything is constantly hitting you, there's a sense of aliveness and being awake that I became really addicted to. And it was also something I think I, t- I was able to then take home, take it home to New York and keep my eyes open and to look at every person in every s- shop on every street corner and every every hole and crack in the sidewalk and, and take it in because New York in its own way is as exotic as New Delhi. You just have to, to see it that way. All right, so jumping back to the teenage you, the formerly brokenhearted person in India, where do you go after that? You leave India, but what happens next? Well, I went back and I finished college, but I I had determined at that point that I was going to join the Peace Corps when I got out of college, so I had no anxiety about a job. I applied to the Peace Corps, and because of my India experience, I wanted to go to Asia. Everybody wanted to go to Nepal. It was called the Peace Corps Shangri-La. But I applied, and I got into a program in Malaysia. I wasn't thinking of actually doing what I was supposed to do in the Peace Corps. I was thinking where I could be that would allow me to go travel and see other cool stuff. And about two weeks before the program, the we were due to leave for the Peace Corps. There was some political, pro- I think there was a coup in Malaysia. I don't remember exactly now, but there was some, so there was some political upheaval. Jimmy Carter was president and we just pulled all the Peace Corps out and ended the programs there. I'll never forget, I, I called the Peace Corps office in Washington, D.C. and very calmly said to them, I've sold my car, I've moved out of my apartment, and I'm living with my parents. I will go anywhere. I want to be on the next program that's leaving this country. You can send me anywhere you want. And they called me back in a little while and said, someone just dropped out of a program in Kenya. Do you want to go? And I said, absolutely. I knew nothing about it. I had no preconceptions about it. When I got there, I kept trying to compare it to India. And then it took me a while to then see it on its own terms. And I stayed for five years. What did you end up doing there? What did the Peace Corps want you to do there? I was a teacher in a rural secondary school, and I got there, and I was supposed to teach English, which I learned was, it's the hardest thing in the world to teach your native language to someone, because why are things the way they are? Well, that's the way it is. I don't know. I've always said it. But interestingly, I ended up teaching physics, which meant for me staying like one chapter ahead of the kids. And I then, I ended up, among other things, I taught some history, and I taught Swahili, People in the, in the village where I was were not native Swahili speakers, uh, but these kids had to prepare for exams in which they had to know the proper Swahili, which I knew and they didn't. Most people don't know what Swahili sounds like. Do you still remember it? That's great. <laughs> what did you say? I, I, what did I say? I, 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 I said I, I used to know a lot of Swahili, and, uh, but I've, I've forgotten most of it. So you end up staying for five years. How old are you at that point? I was the youngest person in my Peace Corps group to go overseas, so I think I was 21 when we left. And the five years were, was not all with the Peace Corps. I did two years with the Peace Corps, and then I did not want to go home. I spent a year working with Catholic Relief Services, and I had the best job in the world, I thought 
which was that I was starting projects all over the country. So they gave me a truck and they gave me a budget and I drove all over Kenya every single inch, almost every town in that country, because these local parishes would apply for these projects and I would go up, visit them, and approve them or not approve them for projects. I got to know every inch of that country and I I loved every minute of it. Yeah, I was gonna ask for a 21-year-old or younger guy, what was the social life for you there if you're teaching kids in a secondary school? You really want to get into that? Yeah, Um, let's get in. (laughs) um, I did did for part of the time have have a, a, a girlfriend in the Peace Corps. So she was another American. She was, I had a motorcycle. It was about an hour's motorcycle ride away, or more, a little bit more, I think. That was my social life. But then it was drilled into us in the Peace Corps, like, don't start having relations with the young women in the village. It's just not going to turn out well. I certainly had opportunities for that, but I will never forget the first weeks or so I was there, this beautiful young girl comes up to me and said, I want to be your wife. And I was there like, well, I'm not really ready to get married and I just met you, but, um, you know, if you want to get a beer or something sometime, I'd be happy to do that. This was actually a hard adjustment for somebody who comes from sort of a liberal tradition where I I sort of figured that I don't want to have servants and I don't want to do all this, but I, I was informed by the chief of the village that I was expected to hire people based on my measly Peace Corps salary, which was nothing in American terms. So I hired a kid to do my laundry. And by being my wife, she was basically hiring herself out to also do my laundry and and other things. And I passed on that, and I I didn't see her much after that. And I didn't get to Nairobi very much. But when I did, there were nightclubs and disco. It was a lot of disco in those days. It was the early 80s, late 70s. So there were, you know, lots of strobe lights and flashing lights and... There's a huge amount of prostitution in capitals and poor countries. And the line between a girlfriend, and this is something I learned, and it took me a long time to kind of figure it all out. And actually, I wrote a book about it where I get into it somewhat. If you were to meet a girl in a restaurant, you know, not in a club or something like that, as somebody with resources, you were to have any kind of sexual relations with that person, there was an exchange expected. So the line between dating and prostitution was was very, very blurry over there, and, and I, it took me a long time to kind of figure that out. That's your social life. Yes. <laughs> and you as a person with a Peace Corps salary or, I guess, Catholic services at this point, you were con- still considered a person of means. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, I mean, there are parallel economies in most of these countries. There's the economy that most people live under, and then there's the economy that expatriates and rich live on. There was a time I was living, as many years later, I was back as a journalist in Kenya. And I was living in this house. It wasn't mine, but it was owned by a, a fellow journalist who wasn't there much. And so I, I had an arrangement with him. And I remember I bought a bottle of whiskey at the local liquor store, and I brought it back, and I left it on the counter. And the housekeeper took it and put it away, and the price tag was still on it. And I realized the price tag on that bottle of scotch was what she got paid in a month. My friend who owned the house had two German shepherds. When he was away, I would pick up food for the dogs. And you'd go to a butcher shop and you would spend on the dogs more than than these people would spend for their entire food budget for a month by far. So these these worlds exist side by side and they cross in places where there's household help and, and, and that sort of thing. But people are not inhabiting the same worlds. To buy a Mercedes in 
in Africa cost a tremendous amount of money because there's all kinds of duties and, and, and taxes on that, so import duties. That's going to be more than the average person is going to earn in a lifetime. Yet the streets of these capitals are jam-packed with Mercedes-Benzes. There's very, very little social mobility that doesn't start with crime. How do you navigate that? How do you recognize your privilege and, and yet still be respectful to the people who work for you? Having lived there for so long, do you have any advice with that sort of thing? <sighs> I don't, I, I, you know, I don't think so. It, it's, it's a really, really difficult thing. You have to realize that. It is white privilege in Africa to a certain extent, but it's also foreigner privilege. If I need help of any kind, I can get it. I had cholera once. I was airlifted out and I was put in a room at Nairobi Hospital, I guess it was. It had really great medical care. And the bush people are dying of it like crazy. Am I intrinsically more valuable? No, as a human being, no. I had access to resources by the very fact that I was working for American organizations at the time. I'm there also trying to, presumably trying to help this country reach a place where everybody can have that. But also, you know, that's true in the States too. We have an incredibly uneven medical system. It's not only money-based, but it's certainly knowledge-based. I mean, I, I have a certain sense of privilege in that if my kid's sick, I or my wife can make the phone calls, figure out who the best doctor for a certain thing is, and, and make sure that he gets to see that doctor. It's maybe an impossible question, but how do you reconcile that? Yeah, you're right. It's an impossible question. <laughs> uh, this afternoon, right? You know, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't thought about it in a while, on, honestly. But I came out of that very, very sour on the entire idea that we as Westerners can go in there and help. I think what we do is we set a really bad example. You know, hordes of young Westerners who have no particular skills go into, go into Africa, go into South America, go into other places, and presumably explain to people who've grown up in places and who've lived there forever and who probably understand the things about the system and the world that we will never understand, we presume to tell them how to better their lives. And I don't think we can do it. That was, is what struck very, very deep inside of me. And back when I was there, there was a beginning, you know, the kids take these um, service trips, high school kids. My son's a, a senior in high school this year, but last year, he, you know, there was this fair on campus and all these groups go to Guatemala for three weeks and, you know, we're going to help build a school and stuff like that. And I think he picked up from me that I don't approve of that kind of stuff the arrogance of a bunch of like American teenagers going and pretending that they're going to be able to help somebody when in fact you what you're doing is you're going into a place and you're showing that look at my privilege they're going to be running around taking pictures with their iPhones and and sending them home and, and cameras and whatever else kids are carrying around these days yeah. so I mean I've become very very soured on the idea that we can fix these things from the outside well some parents would think that just just the exposure to a third world country would be helpful to their children. Do you th see any value in that? No. No, I don't. Well, I mean, it might be a value for the children. It's, it's certainly of no value whatsoever to the people you're visiting and to the people you're staying with, to your host country, really. I really doubt that in a week, which is basically kind of poverty tourism, that you're going to learn very much that you couldn't learn watching a documentary or looking in your own backyard. 
I don't know what good it is. There, I ran into a bunch, I saw, I didn't talk to them, a bunch of American kids on spring break here last week. And I was walking up a, some steps behind them, and they were ragging on the Italians about how poor the technology was here in this town. These kids don't know anything about what the technology here is in this town or anything like that. And they were saying, like, I, literally, they said, have they ever heard of HD? And someone said, ha, ha, just, you know, they're probably watching their VCRs. I mean, I'm not saying that everybody's an arrogant American, but I've had plenty of experience with that. Let's jump back to Africa again. And you were saying that the only way to get ahead in their economy, or where you were anyway, is violence. Tell me about that. A little bit of prostitution, a little violence, those lines, and, and your experience with it as well. Well, and the prostitution, let's start with the prostitution thing, which I, I know probably more about than I really ought to. I taught school in a rural school for two years. And in this poor little village, there was no more land. There was coffee being grown. There was no more land to, to carve up among your sons and your son-in-laws or whatever. So the people in those villages, when they got out of school, were heading, heading to the cities. I knew what was going to happen to some of my students. I mean, I probably taught 300 students over those two years. And I followed a number of them, and a couple of them I still stay in touch with. And one of them actually ended up in graduate school. But the rest of them, there are no jobs in the cities. So the girls go there, and they're under pressure to find a job and send money home. Capitalism dictates that you use the resources that you have that are most valuable. And for a young girl, that resource ends up being her body. I know that a number of the young women I taught there ended up as prostitutes. I saw them around Nairobi. And for the boys, their resource is also their bodies, but it's their physical strength and, and their wiles. And crime was rampant. It was a very, very dangerous city at the time. I, don't, I can't speak to Nairobi now. I haven't been there in a long time. But I've been, I was mugged twice there in all those years. And cars get broken into and, and things get stolen. Because there's just, there was no way for people to really improve their lives through the channels that we see. We can tell our kids, go get a good education and study hard and you can get a job or you can become an entrepreneur or you can pursue your interests, pursue your passions. And that's not an option in most of the world. I spent a lot of time in Nigeria as well. And everybody knows the stories of these Nigerian con artists who con people out of money. And they're, then they keep doing it. We laugh at the, hi, my, my name is Prince Akinola and, and I have a billion dollars in a bank in London. I can't get it out. And you anonymous person who I just wrote to on the internet, you can help me. And we go, ha, 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 ha. But they keep doing it because it works. And <laughs> the reality is I, they're educated people. And, and so we're educating people our people are getting educated in ways that they have nowhere to go with that stuff. There's just, they hit up against the ceiling. And, and again, it's a question of they use the resources they have in the best way they can to kind of get ahead in the world. They end up as criminals to a certain extent. At least they're not mugging anybody. And you, I think that this is part of the reason why Africa has a reputation for being exceptionally dangerous beyond war and disease, of course, that when you get to the Western world, some people are too afraid to go to Africa. They would go to South Africa, but they wouldn't go to rural Africa somewhere. I don't know. What's your response to that? Oh, go to Africa. It's, it's, it's an amazing, amazing, amazing place. Go off the beaten path and don't buy some prepackaged tour in, you know, with Abercrombie and whatever in, in, in New York. Actually, if you buy those tours, most of that money ends up staying in the States. 
and they only pay things down, or they pay, it stays in the, in the West where you buy it. No, I mean, I hope to take my son to Africa in the next few years and go back. Yes, there's crime, but also, you know, I mean, I spend a lot of time in New York City, and there are people who won't go there either. Right. Yeah, I guess yeah. the uh, the inherent question there is, are you more inherently brave than other people? No, I'm not more inherently brave. I, I never consider myself very brave. I've done things that are really stupid. <laughs> Example? <laughs> <laughs> um one of the first stories, I, things when I became a journalist, um, I, did we get into that? Yeah, we're getting there, we're getting there. I became a journalist after those experiences, and I went to the AP office in Nairobi. And I wasn't working for anybody at the time, and I wanted to be a stringer, and they said, well, these stories. I went into Uganda during the overthrow of Idi Amin. It was <laughs> insanely dangerous, just absolutely crazy dangerous. And in order to sell a story for $150 to the AP, I have no idea if it even ever ran anywhere, but um, I, I, I walked into a situation of utter anarchy where I mean soldiers were fleeing uh, advancing Tanzanian troops, guns were everywhere. I mean, people, they were selling their guns and selling their uniforms, so all kinds of people were armed and people were getting shot. You couldn't tell who was a soldier and who was a criminal and, and they were killing animals in the zoos for food and... and uh, I kind of walked through this whole thing. I still have this huge wad of Ugandan money with Idi Amin's face on it. I'm, I'm sure it's going to be worth a fortune someday <laughs> um, that I picked up at the time. But but money was also worthless and all of that, so people were, were bartering for food. And I was only in there for a couple of days, and it wasn't long after that I came back. I ran into some other journalists who I, I knew in Nairobi. I, know, I didn't know them that well, but they said to me, so Uganda, is, is it cool to go in there? And I was like, yeah, I was in Uganda, blah, blah. They both ended up in prison. Whoa. They both ended up in prison in Uganda, fearing for their lives. I don't think they were physically tortured, but the, they were tortured. I think I was probably about 25 at the time. It taught me a very, very valuable lesson, and I still feel responsible to, for that to this day. What was the lesson that you learned? Well, I really learned that how dangerous the world really is and you can't mistake your own good luck for any kind of skill you can say actually i'm going to flash forward into the 90s in mogadishu where i spent five years there covering the, everything that was going on in somalia and a lot of journalists died over there a whole bunch and something would happen all the journal most of the journalists stayed in the sahafi hotel in a relatively safe, we would like to think, part of, of Mogadishu. And any time a journal, somebody would get killed, the rest of us would sit around, usually on the roof of the hotel, with huge amounts of alcohol, and explain why that person got killed. Which is, well, you know, you, everybody knows you don't go down to that part of town at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You know, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah, it was, that was stupid. The reality is it was just dumb luck and what you end up doing in those situations is creating a, kind of a, a rationale that allows you to believe that you know you can go back out the next day because you're not going to do that stupid that you know got Serge killed and of course you know you're just allowing yourself you're, you're telling yourself the stories that allow you to 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 go on and so the overall lesson, which I, I think you have to keep learning over and over again, is that, yeah, don't mistake your, your own 
temporary good fortune for, for a superpower because it can happen to anybody at any time. From a journalistic standpoint, is the story worth putting yourself in that situation where here today, gone tomorrow, or knowing people that were your journalistic friends who got killed trying to report on this? Is it worth it? Well, you know, I, I, that's not a question I can answer. And, and, I, and I don't think it's a question that anybody ever thought of who's doing that. I mean, you do, you're a certain kind of person for, who, who does that to begin with. I don't agree with, by the way, there's sort of this thing, well, these guys are addicted to adrenaline. It's mostly guys, but there's women too. Because I, I don't think anyone's actually addicted to their own adrenaline. But there is something, there's something unique about a group of reporters who are, for the most part, educated, cynical, people who really knew what was going on in a situation, being together, sharing that, you know, a bond, a camaraderie that is very, very, very hard to recreate. And I, and I think that's the thing that people go for. I'm still friends with a lot, most of those people, the people who are still alive. Uh, we actually have a, f- a private Facebook page that we, we communicate on for the people who were at, at that hotel during those years. Are any of them still doing it? Battle zone reporting? Uh, yeah, a, a couple of them. Um, I think most of them now, you know, we're older. It's not the kind of thing I would have done if I had a kid. I have two very, very strong memories of that. I mean, I was single and and at the time, at 35, was one of the older people doing it when I was in Mogadishu. Two things. One of them was a group of American reporters, Pentagon reporters, had come along with this wave of American soldiers at one point. So they were mostly people used to covering the Pentagon. And one of the guys, they showed up at the hotel, and we came under fire. Somebody was shooting at us from, from across the street. And we're all lying down, and you know the bullets are dinging off the concrete and all of that. And one of these guys just started saying, I got a wife and two kids at home. I got a wife and two kids at home. I got a wife and two kids at home. And I think it was me, but somebody, I don't remember in the, in the moment, somebody, somebody just said, like, you know, shut the fuck up. You know, you're going to get us all, just shut up and lie there. And I remember thinking, like, yeah, you got a wife and two kids at home. You probably shouldn't be here. <coughs> and then at the time, I, I, I went to... Um, there was a journalist there who was turning 50, which seemed horribly old to me at the time. <laughs> and he was a guy who, I mean, a nice guy. I liked him a lot. I think he was on his third wife and he had a couple sets of kids at home who, who didn't talk to him and so that kind of thing. But I remember you know, we had a birthday party for him and he, he got very drunk and everybody got very drunk. And I remember thinking, like, I don't want to be doing this when I'm 50. Mm-hmm. I stopped doing it when I was in my early 40s. And did you just stop because of a kid? I stopped because of a wife and a kid, yeah. I mean, and there's times I so, so itching to go back. I was in New York when the uh, embassy in Nairobi was bombed. And I knew a lot of the people there, and if I'd been in Nairobi, I would have been right there on the spot. Instead, I, you know, I, I went on to CNN, I think, or MSNBC, or one of those at the time, and did the blah, 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 talking head thing. And, and, but I remember thinking, this is not satisfying. I really wanted to be there. And it took me a while. I mean, I still get an itch once in a while, but, but it's, it's, it's kind of gone away. I don't really know how to ask this question because it's always a concept that I sort of have in my head that I have trouble describing to people. But uh, it's sort of this thing about real life versus fake life. Does what's happening in a war zone like that or when the bullets are flying and the people around you are dying, 
does that feel more like you're actually living what real life is versus when you're sitting in a beautiful fancy hotel on the on the coast of Italy do you do you kind of get what yeah, I'm getting at you know what it, it's it's not a question of real life it's a question of being utterly utterly alive and even sitting in this hotel in the coast of Italy sometimes I was there like what did I just do for the last hour I didn't get much read I didn't get any writing done I I, I kind of I don't know, time sort of passed, and I'm looking out the window, as, as sort of opposed to, you know, it gets back to that feeling I originally had in India when I was out on the streets, which is, oh, look at that, smell that, see that. And if you're in a war zone, every day was like that. I mean, you know, you had no, nothing was predictable. You had no control over your day. You think you would, you would make plans, but, you know, then, then you know, a bomb would go off over here or, or a gunfight would erupt over there. And you changed your plans. You were at the mercy of these events. And as a journalist, you know, your job is to notice the events. You see it. I mean, it, it's a wonderful thing to have your job and your responsibility be to have your eyes open and your ears open and to see people and to ask them questions. I mean, I still do that. I still, still wherever I am, I, I, I talk to people. I can't take vacations, for example. I'm not really good at vacations. And long before I was married, I, I was with a, a with a girlfriend on the. We went to some Caribbean island somewhere. You know, we're gonna lie in the sun and we're gonna eat meals and that. Within two days, there I'd rented a car and I was out interviewing people about the economy of the. I wasn't working. I just wanted to know, you know. So I have a hard time relaxing. I've never. That's the only time in my life I've ever been to a resort. Well, maybe this is relaxing. Talking to people, finding out what's going on around you. Well, it is relaxing, but it's more interesting than just sort of working on a tan <laughs> or, 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 you know, you, I see these, you see these ads on television for, you know, oh, the Sandals Resort here and there, and people are sitting there with their, you know, with their feet in the blue water drinking fruity drinks with crap sticking out of them, and I, and I feel like, uh, give me a dirty bar in Kinshasa and a shot of whiskey and your hands on the, and your feet on the ground, as opposed to like just floating in a, in the cool blue Caribbean. Right. Given your whole background and so much time in, in these dangerous locations, did you come away with a different view on life and death than, say, the average Westerner would? Has this expectation of, you know, more than likely I wake up today and I'm going to survive today, most likely, you know? I mean, you never know, but... But, you know, I woke up in a war zone thinking more than likely I'm going to survive today. I never believed, stupid as that was... You know, you got to be a certain kind of stupid to do that work. I never for once thought, I mean, there were times I certainly feared for my life. I've had more guns stuck in my face and, and, and people screaming at you in a language you don't know. I, you know, I always, I don't smoke, but I always carried around cigarettes. You know, when a gunman would come, I'd always kind of like, you know, have a cigarette. I mean, I, you learn things like that. You, you convince yourself that these are the kind of things that keep you alive. One of the last times I was in there in Mogadishu, the airfields were shut down. There was a lot of fighting going on. And a friend and I, we knew there was a UN plane that was going to be landing way north of the city. And we had to get up there. And we got partway up there and we got surrounded. And, and typical situation, where, uh, typical, I don't know, it was typical. But it was almost, it was, I would almost be like you'd cast it in a movie. And there's a guy who's got like gold teeth. And he's standing there and he's pointing a rocket propelled grenade launcher at the front of our car, and there's another a bunch of guys with guns, and they're screaming at us. And, and I've got, we've got a couple of Somali drivers with us. 
and we're not sure who they are <laughs> and, and and whose side they're on. There's all these little factions fighting each other at, at the time. And I kind of thought, okay, this could really be it. And I, and I, I didn't feel anything like fear. It was very, very, very strange. And that's when I did the thing. I did, you know, the trick with the cigarettes. And one of my guys said, oh, they're, they're Ali Muddy's guys. They were at the wrong clan. And they were, they were afraid. I just... I, I said, well, tell him, you know, I was with Ali Muddy this morning. I lied. Mm-hmm. You know, he told me this and this and this and this. And, and you know, I'm, I'm trying, I'm talking my way out of this thing. You know, within like five minutes, everybody's laughing. We're sitting around in the sand smoking cigarettes. And they let us go. And I've got a bunch of stories like that. Um, but I never, ever once feared for my life because I think in order to do that, like I said, you have to be a certain kind of stupid and not really think that anything bad is going to happen to you. And look, and I was right. Nothing bad happened to me. Um, here I am. But, that, but then, but then you, you count up the funerals. And uh, there's an amazing piece of video that, that a friend of mine shot. And it was this a Spanish cameraman who was there first time, first day in Mogadishu. And a, a group of us went out and suddenly we all came under fire. And the camera guys all pull the cameras up. At least as a print reporter, I could like stick my head in the sand and like hope I didn't get shot. The Spanish cameraman suddenly takes a jolt, looks around, and a bullet had gone right through the lens of his camera. Right through the lens. The other guy turned the camera to him and he has him on videotape saying, I'm going home. So not everybody's cut out for this crap. Yeah. But you, would you say that you are cut out? You were? You are? Yeah, I think that was, I was until I wasn't. Underneath all of that, it's easy to look at this as all, it's all the bang-bang and, and all of that. There are people living there. And one of the things I was always conscious of, I can go home. You know, I can call up the UN. I can get on a flight out of here. I can get the U.S. military at the time when, when they were there or the, someone to fly me out of there. All these people, all these millions of people out here, they're stuck here. This is their lives, and they don't, and this is maybe the self-righteous sounding part of it, but they don't have the, they don't have the tools to tell their story. They don't have the connections to tell their story. And I talk to tons of them all the time, what their lives were like. That was the more rewarding thing, even more rewarding than actually writing the stories and getting them published, because sometimes you, you know, you'd send stuff back, and that's not what I wrote, really. You know, the editors cut things, and well, we only had, I know you wrote a 3,000-word article, but we've only had, room for 750 so so here it is yeah. you know when it's all the bang bang dramatic stuff in the, the stuff that sticks with you of course is the times you almost got shot or the time we got i got a bunch of bullets to a gas tank of a car i was in and that's when i said huh you know on tv when they shoot a car in the gas tank and the car blows up that didn't happen so <laughs> you can you can put bullets right through the gas tank. It's not going to blow the car up, at least not in this case. Yeah, you won't be able to drive any further. Well, you're leaking gasoline yeah. all over the place, but so you better get out of there before you run out of gas. But that, I mean, yeah, you remember that, and those are the things people want to talk about. Mm-hmm. But 90% of it is sort of me kneeling. I've got photographs of me sitting in a refugee hut talking to a man who's watching his son die. That's really what feels important about it. Another thing I will never forget, it was a fairly peaceful time. It was way back. I was, in, I was also in Somalia in the early 1980s. There'd been a flood, and a lot, of, a lot of people had moved out of the village to a high ground, and I had moved up there, and I was in a tent with some people. This couple, young couple, you know, they were in their early 20s, probably walked up to us, and they had a baby. They unwrapped the baby, and 
some boiling water had tipped over and just burned this baby all over. And they thought, you guys are foreigner, you're white, you can save the baby. In the West, you would put the kid in a, in a sterile burn center and, and all that, and it would still be, a, um, you know, still have a very slender chance of getting by. What do you say to this young couple? There's nothing we can do about this. To get back to where I started is, I can get on a plane and leave any time. It's not about me. You know, this is not about me. And if I don't have the stomach for it, I should just go. Do you think that there's something inherently valuable, even if the editor were to cut the story of you meeting this couple, say, let's say you had it in an article and they cut it out, is there still something inherently important from your perspective or from theirs that you were in that moment together? Talk to that father while his son was dying? Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that there is. I told that father that his son's death mattered. I let him tell his story to somebody. And I don't think journalists are going to save the world, but we're also in a situation now where when I was working as a journalist out of Nairobi, the LA Times was there and Time was there and Newsweek was there and the Boston Globe has somebody there and the New York Times had a bunch of people. I mean, the place was jammed with journalists. All those bureaus are closed. Only the New York Times has bureaus there now. And the Washington Post, I think, does still. But we're not getting that kind of news out of there that we used to. Journalism is important. All the journalists I knew were, were people who were just try, doing their best to try to tell the truth about things. There's no fake news coming out of the major newspapers or even the minor papers. And we don't have as much news as we used to. We simply don't. Yeah. So to just bring it all the way full circle, when you have those students and you end up following them sort of into their lives, some of whom end up turning to crime and prostitution, do you have a different understanding? People can be pretty judgy about stuff like that. Do you have a different kind of understanding about, I don't know, what people would consider the darker side of humanity? It's not the darker side of humanity. It, it's, it's, if I see someone doing prostitution in a place like that, it's, well, look, look what they're doing for their family. Nobody wants to be doing that. I mean, I suppose there are some people who want to be doing that. But for the most part, it's not a career goal for most people. People do what they have to do to survive, and most people don't have options in life. The poorer the country you're in, the, f- the fewer options you, you have. I mean, yes, there's a few lucky people who can go to school and become clerks and stuff like that. I st- actually, to bring it full, full circle, I, t- I hired this little kid to wash my laundry. He's a pastry chef in London now. But he got out of Kenya. He's a real exception to that rule. Oh, that brings up a bigger question. Do we who have options in life have a responsibility to the people who don't? Yeah, I believe that if we want to live in something that we call a society, I think we have responsibility to each other. Because if we don't, what makes this life worth living? You know, it's just a question of going and amassing as much wealth as you can. How can you not want to help somebody? How can we as a a nation leave Puerto Rico without electricity, you know, with six months after the hurricane? I don't understand that. Yet you want to spend that kind of money for a military parade to make you feel better. (laughs) Not to get political about it at this point. It's hard not to these days, really. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, thank you. This has been fun. Yeah, it's been fun. We'll have to do it again sometime. Barely scratch the surface. Any time. All right. Well, this is the Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. We welcome your questions and your feedback. Reach the show by emailing bittersweetlife at mail.com. That's bittersweetlife at mail.com.